So Jesus, kind of a tough verse to understand, ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us and help us to know how we can walk more closely with you. Ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, good to see all of you here. Great to have those of you who are watching on the podcast as well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, There are, if you think about it, there are a lot of things in life that are counterintuitive, but they work. So for instance, when you're learning how to ski, what's your first instinct? It's to lean backwards, right, when you're first learning. But then your instructor says, no, lean forward and put your weight downhill. But then you say, no, for on the day I put my weight downhill, I shall surely die, right? (laughs) But it really works. It's by leaning forward and picking up speed that you actually are able to stay stable. Counterintuitive. Or for instance, back when I was single and I got a crush on someone, what's the instinctive thing to do? Not talk to them, right? (laughs) course. Instead, just kind of hover around them hoping that they'll notice you. We call that stalking. (laughs) The counterintuitive thing was to risk a conversation. Many things that work run counter to our instincts. And that's true of the verse that we just read, where Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, and whenever he says that, he's basically saying, check it out, pay attention. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world, another way to translate that would be the way of living in this world, will keep it for eternal life. And in the Bible, eternal life never means just going to heaven after you die. It also means living life that has an eternal kind of quality to it right here and now. And in order for that to happen, some things in us are going to have to die. Die to live. Totally counterintuitive. But it works. It leads to a more fulfilling life. And the seed analogy is perfect. One seed can produce a lot of life, a huge harvest. But first, it has to die and fall into the ground. And it's the same with us. In order for joy and adventure and healthy families and strong friendships to be born, in order for all those good things to be born, some things in us, like lust or pride or bad attitudes or bad habits, some things are going to have to die. So here's the question for this week. What needs to die in you in order for new things, new life, to be born? In order to have a resurrection, you got to have a crucifixion. Now, we preachers tend to avoid verses like this because we're afraid you won't come back to church next week if we talk about these things. We think that what you want to hear is that if you follow Jesus, he'll make your life easy and, and, and he'll fix all your problems. I think we sell you short. I think you know that a faith that costs nothing yields nothing, and I think you want more, and I think you can handle these verses, which is why we're doing this whole series on the tough things that Jesus says, to kind of avoid the easy believism of our culture that reduces Jesus down to just my comforter, instead of the God who, like a good coach, calls me up and calls me out to a bigger life. Plus, the ultimate promise of this verse is life, not death. You know, we hear the phrase, die to live. What does the devil want us to focus on? The die part, right? Oh, you can't do that. That sounds terrible. Dudley, you're an American baby boomer. You can't do that. It's impossible, right? What does Jesus want us to focus on? The live part. A couple weeks ago, my kids got to talking about the end of the world. That's what happens in pastors' families. The conversation goes creepy really often. (laughs) And my youngest daughter, in the middle of this conversation, my youngest daughter said, well, you know what? Maybe God will be nice and kill the sleeping half of the world first. What? Like, where does does that terrible theology come? It's not from me. It must be my wife. (laughs) 
And that's how we hear a passage like this. Die, you can't do that. Die to self, it sounds terrible. Here's the question though, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus when he promises that if some things, if you put to death some things in your life, he's gonna guarantee you experience new things being born? Do we trust Jesus and his promise? Because here's the thing, it works, and I'll give you some examples in a bit. But boy, howdy, is it counter to our instincts, isn't it? More than that, it's offensive. It goes against everything our culture says. And let me just get a little bit teachy and philosophical for just a minute, okay? Because it's important we get this in our heads as well as our hearts. The seed Jesus is referring to in this verse is, is not just the things in our life that need to die so that new things can be born, that too, but he's also talking about himself. He is the seed whose death will produce a harvest of new life. He'll conquer death by rising from the grave. He'll conquer sin by paying the price for our sins on the cross. But the way he'll conquer is to let himself be conquered. Not by going up, but by going down into the grave. And this scandalizes both the worldview of Jesus' day and ours. Every world culture says, if you want to go up, go up. Grab for money, grab for power, strive, all of that. But the cross, the cross gives us an interesting historical case study, doesn't it? Because Jesus had no military power, no political, no financial power. The only followers he had were poor peasants, and they deserted him. When he died, he had nothing but a robe. That's all he owned. Didn't travel very far outside of his home, right? No power at all. And and yet, not in spite of those things, but because of those things, he became the most influential person in all of history, and your parents told you to get into Stanford. And then maybe you could make a dent, right? Jesus' way offends the way of the world, but it works. As I've often said, as historians say, the fact that the early Christians would rush into the cities to care for plague victims when everyone else, including the doctors, rushed out was a big reason that Christianity grew so quickly. The survivors were grateful to the Christians and saw in them a fearlessness in the face of death that they wanted, so they became Christians. Now think about it. If a group of people in our culture got together and said, how can we become the most influential religion in our, in our world? Oh, I know, let's die like flies caring for our enemies. That should do it, right? It, it seems crazy. But the way of the cross was so burned into them that they understood that the way to life is to die to self. In another place, Jesus puts it this way. If you lose your life, you'll find it. If you lose your life, if you lose yourself, you'll find yourself. Again, different than every other religion in the world. Eastern religions say, you know what? Your problem is that you think you have a self at all because you're not a self. You're just part of this great collective whatever. So you need to get rid of self, lose yourself, and melt into the vast nothingness that is. Secular Western philosophy says the opposite maximize yourself, fulfill every desire you have. The poet W.H. Auden has a line in one of his poems where he says, oh, miserable, evil, wicked me, how interesting I am. And that is the Western culture, right? Me, 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 I gotta be me. But Jesus doesn't say lose yourself, nor does he say maximize yourself. He says, if you die to your own desires and come alive to the desires I give you, now you'll really be living. See, Jesus is not one more philosophy, not one more religion. He overturns them all. The cross mocks the world. The cross taunts the world and says to the world, you think you're winning by killing me, but you're not. You're losing. It's by dying that I am going to bring new life. And here's what that means for you and me. Here's what that means for how you and I live our lives. If you want new life, some things in you are going to have to die. Attitudes, habits, sins. 
You know, if you've ever seen the redwoods in California, they're, they're, just blow, they're so big, they just blow you away. More amazing is all that power was locked in a seed no bigger than a golf ball. But it was dormant until the seed died, fell into the ground, and then all that potential exploded into new life. Now, if you're the seed, and if a seed could think, right, the seed's probably sitting there going, I hate this. You know, it, it, it's cold, it's dark, I'm stuck in the mud, I hate this. But then after time goes by, right, it starts to feel something happening, and a sprout comes out, and leaves appear, and then it says, hey, check it out, I'm a redwood. Like, truly, I tell you, I am a redwood. Didn't know I had it in me. Lose your life, you'll find it. Now, I need to say, this also works in reverse. It's when we try to hang on, grab and grasp, that's when we get miserable. For instance, maybe the way you're trying to get recognition and achievement is draining you of joy. I know that's often true for me. Or maybe the way you try to get what you want in a relationship is hurting the relationship. You know, it's like M&Ms. If you hang on to them for very long, you discover that the ads I heard growing up are completely false. They absolutely melt in your hand, right? Not in your mouth. In seminary, I, I've been a part of three great churches and one really lousy church. It was in seminary that I worked at this really dead, just totally dead church. I mean, corpse-like. And one of the big traumas every year was Easter because the church folk got upset that people who don't normally go to church would come and take their favorite seat. You, the horror, right? See, in trying to secure their lives, or at least their seats, they made themselves miserable. And the church was dead, didn't grow paradoxically because they weren't willing to die to self just enough to sit in a different spot. Well, finally, one year, one of the pastors just had it, and he said to one of the parishioners, look, all around the world, Christians are dying in a pool of blood to spread the gospel. We're just asking you to sit in a different place. Oh. Now, as a young seminarian, I was like, you go, you tell them. No, you just, yeah, whoa, until a couple years later when I decided not to be a pastor and was working at Stanford, and I'd get stressed out if I was late for church because someone might get my favorite seat, right? If we hang on, we get miserable. But if we die to self, we get freedom and joy. Let me give you some examples. For instance, if we die to pride, we get free from having to save ourselves, prove ourselves that we're good all the time. For instance, let's say there's a problem in the office or in some kind of relationship. Everyone can see that it's half you and half the other person except for you and the other person. You can't see your part because you're trying to save yourself, prove that you're the good person in this conflict. Someone told me a new term the other day called blamestorming. It's when you sit around in a group discussing why a project failed and who's to blame. It's sort of like that. Blame. Some people call that the debrief, you know, blamestorming. That's what we are condemned to if we don't die to pride, posing, posturing, blaming. Now, it's hard to die to pride, really hard. So we need Jesus to help us out. But the more we experience his love for us, no matter what, that frees us to admit both the good and the bad parts, knowing that he, we are forgiven for the bad and he's working with us to help us overcome them. And then suddenly, I don't need to hide or blame shift or pose or rack up accomplishments to prove myself to everybody. Second example would be if we die to what others think of us, then we become less stressed out people pleasers. There's this thing called the vanity index. It's for scholars, and they can look up how many times they've been cited by other scholars in the footnotes. Oh, please, get a life, right? Except when I was in graduate school, I would sometimes look up my name just to see, right? I mean, that, what, that's hell. You're not, there's, you have no self at that point. You're just living for what everyone thinks. One of the most bizarre news stories in the last year is about this man. 
he was kicked out of Saudi Arabia for being too good looking. I, this, I kid you not, they, they were afraid that he would tempt the women. Women, are you tempted? I mean, what's that like to be deported for being too good looking? I wouldn't know. I mean, just look at, and he knows, you know he knows. Right? Let's just look at the, I mean, and what's the bird for? Like even the birds can't resist me. Big jerk. But you know what, really, this is, this, this is, this is just as destructive as labeling someone ugly. Because it's the same message, you are what you look like, and it's just as destructive. I mean, it leaves this guy to wonder, you know, well, what if I weren't good looking? Or what about when I'm older, then who will like me? Now, now, even as I say that, I have to admit, well, I'd still rather look like him, right? It's a more pleasant form of destruction, but it's still destructive. But if you die to that by living life for an audience of one, Jesus, measure yourself only by what he thinks of you, you begin to get free of what others think. Now, that is not easy. I have a hard time with this. It takes time. And if we do that, you know what? Some folks are going to think we're weird and they're not going to want to be friends with us. But as we connect with Jesus, and I have experienced this, and if we experience his love, what other people think matters less. God thinks you're great. Who cares what they think? You see, other people's opinions of you are none of your business. Other people's opinions of you are none of your business, and that is such freedom. You can look at peers or the title of your job or your salary and think, these things are good, I'm glad to have them, but they don't define me. Which brings me to the third example, and that is if we die to our idols, we get freedom from meaningless suffering. And here's what I mean by that. Every time you don't get that job, or that someone doesn't date you, or you don't achieve that goal, Jesus can use that to put to death the idols we hang on to that keep us from the freedom he wants to give us. Now, God doesn't cause those hard things to happen all the time, but he can make them matter. They're not meaningless. Use them to put to death some of our own idols. I'll give you an example. I told you a couple of weeks ago that sometimes I can start to worry about stuff that's not likely to happen, but still seems real to me sometimes, especially at night. I gave you the example of worrying about losing my job and having to go live in a trailer in Pasco and the dog would leave me even though we didn't have a dog and I'd become a country western song. Well, here's how God uses that if I surrender it to him in prayer. He uses that to help pry my fingers off of some of my idols like my job, which is good and I love it, but it doesn't define me. And in those worried moments when I'm paying attention, Jesus nudges me and he says, you know, what's really the center of your life, Dudley? Did I have joy before this job? Yes. Could I have joy without it? Yes. Why? Because Jesus is there giving me purpose wherever I am. I could be a bus driver, like the one I told you about a couple weeks ago, and find joy in that by how I participate in the kingdom there. Dying to my idols sets me free. So, this is a hard teaching, I know, but it works. So, what needs to die in your life in order for something new to be born? Maybe, for instance, it's to die to some of your comfort and some of your time. My dad is 78 years old, and a few years ago, he felt Jesus, a.k.a. his pastor, nudge him to lead a Bible study in a jail. And I'm not sure my dad wanted to do that. It's hard and all of that, but he loves it because he sees God using him. One day, a guy named Dave came to the Bible study really angry, really angry attitude. Whenever Dave would say the word God, there was another word in front of it, an adjective or a gerund. So my dad said, you know what? I have a lesson planned for today, but Dave here has convinced me to do something different. So my dad took out a pamphlet called The Four Spiritual Laws that talks about Jesus' love, 
And as he went through that pamphlet, Dave started to lean forward and get more interested. Pretty soon he took off his hat. And then he said, something's happening to me. I can feel it here. And he pointed to his heart. And then, and then he got agitated. He said, I need to do something. I need to pray or something like that. So my dad guided him through a prayer. And it was a turning point for Dave where the God that he was mad at touched his heart in a way that he could physically feel. My mom said my dad came home higher than a jet plane that day. He died to his agenda for his time, his comfort, and he got back lots of life. Maybe it's something in your relationship that you need to, in relationships that you need to die to. Any, for instance, anybody here ever try to control another person? Maybe a spouse or an adult? None of you. Okay, well, anyone? I mean, maybe you're even sitting here thinking, you know, you're listening to this talk and you're thinking, man, I hope so-and-so is really listening to this because, man, they really need it. <laughs> I might just get them the CD to help them out, right? Maybe it's to die to some of those controlling behaviors. Maybe it's to die to pride and say, I'm sorry to your spouse so that healing can start. Maybe it's to do one thing a day for the next month, one thing a day for the next month that blesses your spouse. Yeah, but pastor, you know, they need to help me and say, me, say to me and they need to do that. For me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait downhill, see how it goes. Or maybe it's to look at the different trials of life, not as trials, but as opportunities to die to self. For instance, parents. Parents, have you ever found yourself saying anything like, these kids are going to be the death of me? Well, yes, that's what kids are for. Seriously, to help you die to self and become less self-focused. Maybe it's to die to certain attitudes. Bob Goff, who spoke at worship in the park in August, he tells a story of a time an elderly woman ran a stoplight and hit his car. He spun around, door flew open, he was actually thrown from the car, but fortunately he didn't get hurt at all. The woman, whose name was Lynn, was in her late 80s, felt horribly guilty, even though Bob went over, asked if she was okay, said he didn't have a scratch on him. In fact, he's kind of an adrenaline junkie, so what he said was, that was one of the coolest things that has ever happened to me. <laughs> if that were a ride at Disneyland, the, the line would be a mile long. Well, she still felt so guilty that every couple of days, she would call Bob to apologize, and this went on for weeks. Finally, he sent her a bouquet of flowers with a note that said, Lynn, great running into you. Now stop calling me. I'm fine. That's a great example of how we don't believe we're forgiven when God says we are. But it also shows Bob Goff dying to a lot of attitudes. Fixation on material things like a car. Irritation at the inconvenience of it all. And his attitude is the result of a lifetime being connected to Jesus, knowing how loved he is. And the result is rather than being all uptight about a car crash, which a lot of folks would be, he finds it fun. He died to certain attitudes to live a bigger life. I got an email from a woman in our church who compared her relationship to God to a car ride. And she grew up what some folks would call a CEO, Christmas and Easter only Christian, and didn't realize that there was more until college when she heard that Jesus wanted a relationship with her. And in her words, as the confident driver of the car of my life, I opened the door and let him sit in the passenger seat. But then as life went on and she faced challenges in her health and career and parenting, those challenges made her, she said, climb in the back seat and begin to let God do the driving. He used those losses, those disappointments to set her free. Still though, she said she was still questioning the trip, making suggestions, squealing at perceived wrong turns. And she said at the same time, she found her trip a little more bearable if she included what she called her anesthetizing little friend, wine. 
And she told herself, it's, it's just a couple of glasses with dinner to relax, but pretty soon she had to admit that she was an addict. Now, you may think that this story doesn't apply to you if you're not an addict, but you know what? We're all addicted to something, right? I mean, if you don't think sin is addictive, just try stopping, right? Or money or, or success or control. Someone said to me this week, there should be a control freaks anonymous. We'd all have to be there. So this woman tried to stop drinking on her own, but she couldn't. I'll pick it up in her words. This is what she wrote. She said, I imagine Jesus turning to me in the back seat and asking, do you want to get well? Truth was, what I wanted was to be able to drink but not suffer the consequences. Didn't want to die to that. But five years ago, I decided I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, so I walked into my first AA meeting. Admitting that my life had become unmanageable was the point at which I climbed out of the backseat of my car and into the trunk. Through God's help, the support of wonderful friends, and a lot of time, the urge to drink was lifted from me, and I was amazed at the level of serenity and gratitude I had, even during some stressful and sad life events. My sense of God's presence, my deepened connection with Him was nothing short of miraculous life was good in the trunk. But recently, during prayer, I had the image that I was no longer in the trunk, but rather up on the roof, arms wide open, head flung back, thrilled with the ride. And I heard God speaking in my head, you know, I never locked the trunk. Such a touching affirmation of God's desire for me to be free, having surrendered the driving to him. When I shared this with a friend, she said, don't forget your helmet. And I wondered what that meant until in another prayer time, I had the image of Jesus firmly holding my left ankle with one hand out the driver's window while the other hand steered the car. And I thought, now that's even better than a helmet. I'm now celebrating five years of sobriety. And I'm extremely thankful for my new life, all made possible because of God's intervention and the support of some great friends. I'm letting the wind whip through my hair, arms open wide, and shouting, what a ride. Jesus gave her the power to die to lots of stuff. Pride, control, alcohol. And she got freedom and great relationships and joy, even in hard times. Not that it happened all at once, it took years. And we are always in process. In fact, when I emailed her to ask permission to share this story, she gave me an update. And in her update, she said, just to let you know, I'm still on top of the car, though I recently tried a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible jump over to help drive one of my daughter's cars and was told in no uncertain terms that God was driving her car, so don't even try. Shaking my head at my humanity. So what needs to die in you so that new life can be born? It's a tough teaching, but it works. Or what losses are you facing that Jesus can use to help pry your hands off some of your idols and set you free? This woman had a lot of losses, but Jesus used them to free her. And let me close with this question. Why'd you come here today? I mean, some of you might be going, well, my spouse made me. But, but deeper, like, why'd you come? Maybe you were hoping to hear some good music, or maybe you're hoping to hear a good sermon. I hope for that one every week, actually. But deeper, I think you want to connect with the God who made you. And I think you want a community where you can belong, warts and all. And I think you're hoping to hear someone tell you that there's more. More to life than the schedule and the appointments and living for self. More to life than making widgets and buying widgets and trading e widgets on eBay. That there's more than being a producer, more than being a consumer. That there's more that when we give our lives away in the name of Jesus, we find them. And the person who guarantees that is Jesus who lost everything at the cross, even his life, because he'd rather die than lose you. And because he knew that the cross wasn't the end, the resurrection was. In losing his life, Jesus found it and found us as well. See, the cross we bear leads to the crown we wear. 
And it's out of that security that Jesus and only Jesus can give us that we can fling our lives away because when we do, we find them through him. So Jesus, so easy to say, so hard to do. And Lord, this is a hard teaching, so help us hear it and take it to heart in a way that really does change us. And Lord, help us to die to the things we needed to show us what those are and help us to die to those things to come alive to the things that you want to give us. And Lord, when that happens, we know that we can't do it on our own, so when that happens, we're going to point to you as the author of our joy. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.